0: Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Next Gen Cast. My name is Nishmanik. I'm a GP, I was about to say GP registrar, finally a newly qualified GP in Cambridge. And this is episode 26 with Lord Victor Adebowali. And here's just a snippet of what's to come.
1: You know, we're the sixth richest economy in the world and we have people going to food banks. We have uh, uh, situations where life expectancy is going in reverse. We have a situation where if you're a woman in and Dagenham, your active life expectancy is 55. In Richmond, upon Thames, it's over 70. It's a bit like the trickle-down theory. It doesn't trickle very far.
0: So that's just a preview of what's to come. But let me tell you more about Victor Adebowali. So I first heard Victor speak at the RCGP annual conference a few years ago. And he's been on my hit list for the podcast ever since we started. He's done some absolutely groundbreaking work in his career, both as a campaigner and a leader for the homeless, the unemployed, the disadvantaged and those with learning disabilities. He's currently chair of the NHS Confederation, which represents various NHS providers and commissioners. Before this, he was chief executive Turning Point for 18 years, and they're one of the UK's leading social enterprises, which provides services for people with complex needs. He's also served for six years as a non-executive director on the board of NHS England and he'll tell us a bit about what that means. And he was awarded a CBE for services to the unemployed and homeless and became a crossbench peer in 2001. I think this is the first Lord we've had on the podcast and it was a bit daunting but absolutely loved hearing Victor's story. In this conversation we talk about his leadership journey, his absolute dedication to reducing health inequalities and why that should be all of our focus in the NHS and his views on diversity or, or lack of diversity in NHS leadership. Just to give you some context this podcast was actually recorded at the end of last summer which has taken me a while to edit it and get it out and we did have a few tech issues so I apologise in advance for the slight echo and at times I think we sound like we're talking over each other because of the delay and the connection. It's still hopefully a really interesting conversation. So here's episode 26 with Victor Adibowali. Lord Victor Adibowali, welcome to the Next Gen cast, and it's a real privilege to speak to you today. This has been long awaited, so I don't know if you know, but it's taken me about a year to get into your diary. You're clearly a very busy man. That's meant lots of anticipation at my end, probably not at yours, but definitely on my part. But I was really keen to do this, Victor, because I've heard you speak quite a few times over the years. I've heard you on big stages. I've heard you in small meeting rooms at NHS England when I was a clinical fellow there. And I've always come away remembering you and what you've said. I probably think there's three reasons for that. You are always consistently clear about your purpose. You are very much authentically you as a leader. You don't try to be someone else. And you speak the truth. And people Mm. sit up and they take notice. So I've wanted to do this for a long time.
1: Thank you for being here. That's very kind of you to say all that. Crikey.
0: So I always like to start really by talking about people's early lives. I just have this fascination with how our families and our roots and our early experiences as children and young adults shape us as as people and as leaders, I think. So I understand the NHS was in your blood, your mum was a nurse and your father trained as a doctor as well. I understand they came over from Nigeria to Britain at a time of great prejudice when casual racism was quite common. If you don't mind, Victor, can you tell me a bit about your early influences and how you think they have shaped your values and who you are?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's always one of those things. I don't know, I talk about it, really. You know, I was brought up by a nurse, basically. Who became a single parent and the values of nursing and the values of she taught me basically to respect myself, respect others, to stand up for what's right when you see it and not to walk past, because if you walk past, you're part of the problem. And she taught me that, <laughs> that importance and what is important isn't about titles. It's about what you do, what you say and how you say it and who you say it to and when you say it. And she taught me that, you know, you should try and leave the planet better than how you found it. <laughs> She's a remarkable woman.
0: So you, you grew up in Wakefield, is that right? I did. What was growing up like?
1: Um, well, you know, it's, you know, when people say they had a tough upbringing. At the time that they're in it, it doesn't seem tough because you're just in it. Right? You're just getting on with it. And you have your laughs and you have your fights and you have your... So it was, you know, it was... Um, oh, When I look back on it, and I compare it to the childhoods of others, I don't have much in common with many of the people I've ever worked with, and I don't have much because I didn't have those experiences. But, you know, I think there was a love around. Um, But Wakefield in the 60s, 70s and 80s were like a lot of small cities, you know, casual racism, the usual usual stuff, really. But, you know, there was a lot of love there as well, a lot of good people, a lot of salt of the earth. And it sounds a bit of a cliche, but, Wakefield isn't a bad place. It never was a bad place. It was just a place that had all the dynamics of lots of other places, particularly around race. I was lucky enough to, and it is, I think, luck more than anything else, lucky enough to um, get through it. What is it that Nietzsche says? What doesn't kill you tends to make you stronger. But yeah, it had its challenges.
0: You talked about the casual racism there. Were you a victim of that, personally?
1: Well, I think all black people were. When I use the word black, I also include you, It's like black isn't, I'm actually a lovely shade of chocolatey brown. (laughs) It's who you align yourself with. And, uh, you know, well, I mean, black and white minstrel show, it was casual racism. It was normative. People didn't think it was uh, unusual or even it was just everybody was doing it. (laughs) Mm. Even black people.
0: It didn't hold you back.
1: Well, I don't know whether it held me back. Who knows? I might have been world president. The <laughs> experience. I've got, I don't know whether it's held me back or not. Well, um, you are a lord in the
0: House of Commons.
1: Well, I mean, if you, if you think that's, that's progress, then I guess it is. But, I mean, look, titles and gongs are, are, are lovely, but they're only as lovely as what you can do with them. And if you make them the centre of your existence, I think you're making a mistake.
0: That's absolutely right. true. I could not I agree with you more on that,
1: Victor. I know there are people who think that, that being a Lord is the pinnacle of all human achievement, but honestly, it really isn't.
0: <laughs> absolutely, it's about what you do with those opportunities. Going back to growing up, you were head boy, I believe.
1: You've done your research. You?
0: <laughs> you were head boy, um, but you failed your A levels.
1: I failed more exams than I passed, which is the exact opposite of you. You've probably passed more exams than you failed. So I, I was not a straight A student by any means. That doesn't mean to say that I wasn't interested in learning. I was actually, I, w- I was an autodidact. I think that's the word. But the problem with autodidacts is that they don't, they don't, they don't have a curriculum. <laughs> uh, so, you know, when people are teaching you that atoms are like billion balls and you're reading stuff that says that they're clouds of energy, that's a probably, <laughs> that's, a, that's a conflict, right? So, yeah, um, I feel my levels. <laughs> Yes, yes. And you you I spent, spent time, time as a road
0: sweeper when you left.
1: I Excuse. did. Re- I swept the roads of Wakefield and I carried people's dustbins. Yeah, I did all that. You know, there are two kinds of jobs, really. Jobs that are associated with a career that people choose and jobs that are, ne- that, are, that, are, that, are that are necessitated by the need to get some work. Both, one isn't better than the other. It's just very few people have an ambition to be a road sweeper <laughs> or a dustbin man. Right. It's something you have to do. And I'm very grateful for people who do have to be dusty men and road sweepers, which is why I think we should pay them well and look after them. Right. But, I, you know, I didn't set out to be dusty men and road sweeper.
0: But does it teach you something?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It taught me the values of dusty men, the value of dusty men and road sweepers. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you know, if you want to learn about human nature, be a road sweeper. Yeah when
0: people are, people don't think you're watching how they behave is very yeah. interesting
1: Yeah how they behave is how they are it's not so much how they behave how they are
0: And you, you did go to university but I understand you All didn't as well. you, you didn't finish
1: No I'm a failure I'm a failed academic uh, applied biology wasn't for me I don't know I mean I went to I'll be honest I went I went to London to get out of Wakefield um the world beckoned and i wanted to see what was out there so the only way i was going to do it was to go to university i wasn't a particularly brilliant student but i wasn't that interested in applied biology although i can tell you about crash mass massive metabolism if you want
0: i think i'm okay thank you (laughs) maybe for another time i'm sure i use that i use that every day in my consulting room (laughs) but um i Victor, I think I highlight the point of your growing up because it's, it's interesting. People probably look at people like you, leaders like you, and assume that you've had a smooth path along the way. You clearly haven't. And I think that's interesting to learn from and to see.
1: Yeah. Very few people have a smooth path to anything. I've been lucky. I've also worked very hard, but I think I sometimes think it'd be much easier, you know, if I'd have people respect the smoother journey though, don't they? You know, straight A's. Oxbridge and then John being the Treasury is much easier to, to explain than my rather check and past.
0: <laughs> I don't know about respect I am um, I actually find it more impressive that you did not necessarily have the smoothest of journeys and you are where you are.
1: Me and you both but I think that's not the general <laughs>
0: So you mentioned their housing. You spent a lot of time working in housing early on in your career. I'm curious to know, Victor, at what point did you first think of yourself as a leader?
1: Well, I don't think of myself as a leader. <laughs> I have a practice. I practice leadership in an attempt to understand it. I'm a bit wary about these type these things, but I practice leadership. So I don't think at any point I woke up and said, you know what, Vic, you're a leader. Oh, Jesus, that's <laughs> quite dangerous. Other people can use those terms, and I, you know, and I, I have led things. Don't get me wrong, but it's I'm practicing. I am not the finished article by any means. I'm a practice, any more than you're the finished article as a doc, right?
0: Practicing medicine, yes, I like that there because you, you make the distinction between the verb leadership is a verb. It's
1: not no. a, a position no. to
0: achieve and to aim for. So I like that. No,
1: no it's exactly right. Yeah. It's our practice leadership.
0: What do you think the job of a
1: leader is? Um, Well, to take people from where they are to where they haven't been yet. I think that's Ross, Ross Beth Cantor. But I think it's a fairly good definition to take people from where they are to where they haven't been yet.
0: And where would you like to take people?
1: Well, right now, I think I'd like to take people into the promised land of uh, population health and reduced inequity and inequality. That's what I'd like to do. And anybody who tells you that they know how to do it probably doesn't because we haven't done it. So it, it is a, you know, we need to go from where we are to where we haven't been yet, and we need to learn on the way. And it's the learning that creates the next step. If You see what I mean? If you imagine crossing a river, you've got to put down the next stone before you step on it. It's not there. You have to learn, but you have to learn where to put it and then step on it and then do the same thing again. So I think that's why I'd like to, that's where I'd like to take people in health terms. That's what I, I'd like to reverse the inverse care law. I'd like to create a, a health system in the vision of its originators, which was to prevent the poorest dying because they can't afford healthcare. The middle classes benefit automatically, that's why. I don't mention them in that statement, because if the poor are getting a, great, a good service, then the middle classes get a great service.
0: Absolutely. And I've heard you say before this notion of some people believe that a, a rising tide lifts all ships.
1: Well, I, I do dispute the statement because some of the ships have got holes in them. And it, it's a statement of equality, not equity. You know, but it assumes that all the ships are, are seaworthy. Well, not all the ships are city-worthy. Some ships need a crane and they need to fill, have the holes filled before, before they can rise. And I think it's self-evident that that statement is flawed. You know, we're the sixth richest economy in the world and we have people going to food banks. We have uh, uh, situations where life expectancy is going in reverse. And we have a situation where if you're a woman embarking and dagging them, your active life expectancy is 55 in richmond upon thames it's over 70 we have a situation where you know the life expectancy in manchester is 25 percent less if you're poor than if you're middle class i mean it clearly isn't the case is it it's a bit like the trickle down theory it doesn't trickle very far
0: can i ask you about the breadth of that challenge so you talked about You you know, your mission is to reverse the inverse care law, and that's the mission of the organisations that you have led, like Turning Point, which we can talk about. But things haven't changed that much. You're right. I haven't been around that long, but I remember when Marmot's first work came out, and then more recently we had his ten-year report, and he said then that you know not only have things not really changed, they've actually gone backwards, and we now have worsening health inequalities than we ever have. And sometimes when I hear things like that, it, it grinds me down and it makes me feel like how how can we actually change this? It doesn't seem to mm. grind you down. How do you stay no, motivated?
1: Be- well, because what else are you gonna do? I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, I you you're you're a doctor. <laughs> you're one of the lucky ones in that you were born with a fine brain and the means by which to use it. What else are you going to do, Anish? I mean, I mean, you can't be rich enough to avoid the impact of poverty. You know, you can't build your walls high enough. And, and COVID is a very good example of that. COVID doesn't care whether you're rich, poor. It doesn't care what your political, it's going to, it's going to get you and it's going to follow the gradient of least resistance, which means poverty first and then everyone else, right? So I'd like to know if there's an option. I don't know that there's a plan B. Mm. Um so I and and I'm you know, so that realisation seems to me to be a blinding glimpse of the obvious. And the second thing to say is that, you know, I'm far too lucky to be pessimistic. But I, you know, I'm sitting here in a nice house in a in a nice bit of London, you know, I've got food in the fridge, I'm paid enough, my kids are alright, my family's cool. What 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 else am I gonna do?
0: I I really admire that. What are we
1: going to do with that look?
0: (laughs) Do you ever feel somewhat, when you hear the stories of some of the people that you've worked with for many, many years, because I have done some work with the homeless before, nothing to the scale of, you know, this is only a small amount, but sometimes I go away and I feel so despondent about society that it can be hard to think that you can make an impact.
1: Well, first of all, it's not you that makes an impact. It's you and a whole whole army of others. I I don't make, I've never, I work with teams. I work with lots of people and together we make impacts. And some of these stories are individually depressing. But the thing Mm. that I'm always reminded of is by the time they've got to your surgery, their story is one of survival, which is actually inspiring, given the odds. And your job is to stop them from going backwards. And to remind them actually that through their survival to that point, it is in itself almost a miracle in some cases. Right? So if they're in your surgery, they're they're inspirational. Because the stories of most of those people, others more privileged, wouldn't have survived. You know, if you talk to people who've recovered from substance misuse challenges or mental health challenges, their stories are inspirational. Even in the depth of their struggle, as they are struggling, the fact that they are there and struggling is inspirational in and of itself. Because I know that many people who, who were born with twice as much privilege or just luck probably will not survive what they're currently surviving. So it's just a different way to look at it.
0: Mm, that is really helpful, Victor. Thank you. I think something that I've struggled with is... What you were implying there as well is when these people have reached our consulting rooms in general practice, we then actually have an opportunity to help them. But it reminds me of the many other hundreds or thousands that are silently
1: not. Each one of them, yeah, absolutely. And but but you have to work with what's in front of you, and they they represent hundreds of thousands of others. And if you are a GP, if you are a doctor then you have a list and that person you can learn from and that that learning can help you help the next person and help you influence the care pathways or whatever it is that might that might help for those those people anyway so you know you have a duty to learn as much as anything else because you're in a position of some influence
0: Mm, that's very true thank you I found that personally very helpful but um I'm not going to hijack this conversation to talk about me and my struggles I want to go back to your leadership journey, Victor. You were chief executive of Centrepoint, which is a youth homelessness charity, for about five years, and then Turning Point for eighteen years. And that's a social enterprise that helps people with complex needs. For those that don't know, so you turned that from a loss-making charity into this social enterprise with a turnover of more than one hundred and twenty million, or something like that. Numbers (laughs) like that are slight; they're slightly lost on me. But it's a. (laughs) Even I understand the, yeah. the you know there's a big impact there that you've made. I mean, what yeah. did you bring to that role, and what lessons did you learn?
1: Well, God Almighty, so many lessons, so many lessons. We don't have time to go through them all. I guess um, I was ambitious for the organisation. I would watched the organisation for a while, and I thought, actually, I, I, I think I could do something here. There are very few organisations like Turning Point, actually, and not for dividend non institutional, i.e. not a member of the NHS, institutional bodies that works with what 100,000 people in 300 locations. So I guess what I brought was a a sense of possibility. In fact, Turning Point's mission, which wasn't designed by me, it was designed by our clients and our staff, is inspired by possibility. And And I was inspired by the possibility of doing something really different with a bunch of people that I admired mainly the clients, and with a series of teams and leadership teams that actually delivered the organisation as it is today, run by the excellent Julie Bath. So uh, I made a contribution, and that contribution was driven by the possibilities, the the possibility of creating an organisation that could work with substance misuse, mental health, learn disabilities, forensic mental health, but see the connection between all of them, and contribute in its own small way to reversing the inverse care law that affects A lot of people with those challenges. So we did some remarkable, I think we did some remarkable things during the time that we were there. You know, my big learning was, I suppose, how to build a complex organization, (laughs) but also about how the system, how the health and social care system says it works as opposed to how it really works. (laughs) And the difference between the two being where a lot of waste and a lot of Agony is, replen- is uh, resplendent. I also learned about health as a, health and care as a system, not just as a series of organisations. And I suppose I, I deepened my learning about what it is to be a client, what it is to be a patient, what it is to be a citizen in this country, in the health and social care system. Yeah, a lot of I did a lot of learning over that time, which is why I stayed so long. Actually, I, was, I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the learning and the people that I learned with. It's fascinating.
0: Can I dig a bit deeper, Victor? You mentioned some very interesting things there, learning about how the system actually worked. You're the first Mm. person I've had on the podcast who has run a third sector organisation like that for a long time. So I'm keen to use this opportunity to understand what can we learn from organisations like yours about leading in the NHS?
1: Well, simply, I think the one thing you can learn, NHS can learn from organisations like Turning Point is is how to put the client at the centre of decision making, and and how to build the, the the systems and the services from the client's point of view, which seems a blinding glimpse of the obvious. But that's not how these systems operate at the moment. They tend to operate too much in their own interests, and they've lost. They can sometimes lose sight. Not all of them. This is a big statement, but there is a there is a tendency to create process without intention and then the process feeds itself and forgets about what the intention was and I guess one of the things we tried to do at Turning Point certainly during my tenure is to be really clear about what the intention was (laughs) before we established the process and that we tried to create services that were truly intentional Now, that wasn't always easy because we were a commercial organization in the sense that we were a social enterprise. We won contracts, and so we had very clear protocols for how we operated and the things that we wouldn't do and things that we would do. In fact, one of the things I learned was that the best decision-making tool you can have is a set of values that are meaningful and that are shared. And I learned about alignment and that successful organizations that organisations that have an alignment between their vision, their values, their mission, their strategy and their operations. So I guess, you know, that's not always the case in the public sector and in the NHS it can become quite self-absorbed in its own poetry of bureaucracy, which often has very little to do with what people need or what they want or how they want it, when they want it and how they want it delivered.
0: Hmm. I really like what you said there about having intention before process but that feels completely completely at odds to what i've seen in the nhs we seem to be often focusing on process and restructure before we are Mm. fully together with an intention
1: yeah so yeah and and then then the process has developed its own life the processes then need to be fed but people ask why are we doing this the answer to which sometimes doesn't come Never mind the answer, just keep doing it. Otherwise, mm. you lose your job or you won't get the money or whatever. Yeah, process and intention, very important.
0: And this current phase of restructuring now towards integrated care, do you think mm. that we are stepping in the right direction with that?
1: I think so. I mean, first of all, this period is very different from the last. This isn't the same as the, as the 2012 Act, um, because the 2012 Act was effectively an imp- imposition. It was a massive imposition. As as the then chief exec said at the time, this is so big you can see it from space. And it was a massive restructuring of the NHS. And in a sense, what it resulted in almost from day one were attempts to, to change it, to actually make it work. <laughs> and people who were operating like dissidents in 1960s Russia trying to do the right thing. And in a way, that's led to this. It's led to people creating place-based and population health systems based on relationships driven by outcomes that reduce inequity and inequality, around which we're attempting to put some kind of structure. So in a way, for the first time in a long time, the NHS is kind of has an intention and he's trying to find the right process to deliver it. And that's different. That is different. You know, most of my members at the Confed want this to happen because they're already doing it in some form or another. What they're scared of is that what they're doing and what they're achieving gets overridden and overburdened by a bureaucracy which isn't helping the intention
0: that's made me feel more optimistic because you're right that is that's what we're trying to do now I've always felt previously that when people talk about culture and relationships it's often met with an attitude of well that takes too long really and how do you measure that and
1: yeah I know it always makes me laugh because I always say to them well try doing whatever you're doing without relationships good luck with that if you want to waste money." don't build relationships, but spend it anyway. I mean, this isn't a hymn to uh, a lack of control or a lack of data. In fact, it's the opposite. It's saying that you do need both things, but relationships trump structure every single time.
0: Absolutely. In a culture, it's strategy for breakfast. That's what they say. There you
1: go. There you go.
0: So I'm quite interested to know what you think of the role of primary care in all of this, Victor. What role do you think we have in the trajectory of the health service in your mission of which should be our mission as you said of reversing the inverse
1: care law well you're the front door aren't you i mean you, you have been from the very beginning i'm never sh- quite sure that we got primary care right in that it's interesting we talk about primary care and primary care is more than gps and you know we need to get primary care right now because it's the key intervention in population health and reducing health, inequity and inequality. So we need to work with you guys and we need to up the importance of your influence on the system. However, we need to create the incentives that mean that you stay because one of my worries is, and it may not be, I haven't got the evidence to, to back this up, so you know, you tell me I'm wrong, but one of the things I'm worried about is the notion that GPs having trained for a long time, want to work sort of two days a week for the NHS and then want to do a day a week doing a bit of management consultancy and then two days doing a bit of this and And you're thinking hang on a minute you know you're 25 and you want a portfolio career and that says something about the NHS as to why you don't want to work full-time in the NHS but it also says something about the relationship we have with you as a highly trained highly valuable member of the health community, frankly, we don't have GPs, (laughs) we're in real trouble. And I know that are places where hiring a GP, getting a GP to work is really difficult. So there's something about the incentives, there's something about the career structure, there's something about what is primary care in the context of population health and how necessary it is and how it needs to be built into the population health system as the front door, as the radar that tells us what's going on why it's going on and what we need to do about it and then there's something about how we create the right conditions for primary care to to really drive understanding of what population health is so primary care is pretty vital it's pretty mission critical but i'm worried i'm worried about the lack of attention we're paying to the sort of basics here about how do we recruit gps where from how do we get them to stay you know the idea that a gp can can get paid more by not having nurses or other GPs <laughs> seems to me to be bizarre if the outcome is a poor service to the population that they're there to serve. There's a lot of work to be done I think and a lot of work to be done with GPs because I think one of the things that we haven't done in the past is work with primary care to build the right kind of future for it so there's lots of imposition and i I'm, I'm was aware of the fury that came from gps when they were told get off your computers you've got to do five days a week patient facing it's like hang on a minute we've just gone through a pandemic we've just inoculated what 38 million people (laughs) at least talk to us about what might need to happen next so that that kind of relationship with primary care it just needs to have a bit of respect in there (laughs)
0: yeah you're um you're preaching to the converted of course you're absolutely right i think there is very much a sentiment in general practice that things are done to us rather than with us mm. and going back to your point about careers as a you know i'm not even qualified yet but i will be soon oh,
1: and... God, close, bloody hell. <laughs> i'm surprised you've got time to do podcasts bloody hell. But, I mean, um... how much sleep do you get
0: plenty actually plenty (laughs)
1: plenty I am smarter person than me that's all I can say but but
0: thank you but going back to your point about part-time working the reason most people of my generation want to work part-time is because the day job is exhausting and there's a lot of inflexibility in how we can work so I'm the mum of a two-year-old and it's virtually impossible to create a working day yeah, that yeah. I, means I can pick I, her up. And that sort of thing is not, I, It's not stuck in the dark
1: ages. I, I totally agree with you. And so this is the thing. You know, this is the thing. Intelligent people need to be given control. They need to be, given, they need to be empowered and they need to be trusted. And one of the things that worries me is what I call the, the burgification of professionals. in, in the, So, you know, we, we have to train you really well we have to trust you to make the right judgments. We have to hold you to account, but we have to do so in a way that's empowering you to actually deepen your knowledge and deepen your effectiveness. And when I, I was in New Zealand a couple years ago and I kept bumping into all these English people who'd been, who all been trained in England and were now working in New Zealand. And I said, are you getting paid more? And they went, no. I said, well, why are you here? They go, because of the flexibility, the, the trust, the co-production. And it's not rocket science. Why put all this time and effort into training someone like you, and then make it impossible for you to work?
0: Thank you, Victor. And it, you know, people talk a lot about pay, and I think that that is a very narrow way of looking at it. Beyond a certain amount of pay, I'm not sure that the incentives, no, I totally financial incentives, work. It's about everything else that comes with it. The things yes. you talked about autonomy, it's like a trust,
1: contract.
0: completely. I that's a great and term. Actually,
1: if you look at the evidence and what incentivizes people to work, pay is, is number three. It's not number one. There's lots of other things, and the more and the smarter you are, the more intelligent you are, the less likely it's going to be about money. You know, look, you don't have to be a GP. You're smart enough. You've got good A levels. You could be a management consultant. You could go and work for Goldman Sachs. You could do a, lots of things. You've chosen to do this, so it's not about the money. You could earn double your money You're doing something else. You don't have to do this. So clearly, the, the settlement has to be more than. People want it to be more than more about money, but let's not offend them.
0: And I think that comes down to what we've already talked about with leadership and culture. It stems from the top. If leaders create a culture that lets you do the job that you want to do and improve the job that you want to do, I think that will have a huge impact on morale and retention. I
1: totally agree, and I'm interested in what that looks like from from a primary care position. If you got a number of people in a room at the different levels of primary care practice for a, a week and said, okay, you've got a week to show us what good looks like in terms of the relationship that you have with your employers, society at large. What does that look like? I've just left you there with some decent facilitation. Would you, could you come up with it?
0: An interesting That's experiment. Let's try it. It's an experiment. <laughs> Victor, I'm keen not to, not to keep talking about just about primary care and bring this back to you, because you have done some fascinating things that I can't waste this opportunity to ask about. You're on the board at NHS England for six years as a NED.
1: I was.
0: For yes. people who don't know what a, a NED, a non-executive director, is, can you tell us what that is and, and what you learned about NHS England when you were
1: there? Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, all I can say is my beard was thick and black when I started. Um No, I think a Ned, uh, well, it's, it is what it says on the tin. I'm a non-executive director, i.e. I'm not responsible for the executive management of the business or the organization. I am responsible for holding the executive to account for directing the day-to-day operations. So it's about strategy. It's about vision. It's about values. It's about, you know, assisting, scrutinizing critiquing and supporting the executive rather than uh, being the executive? What did, it, what did it teach me? Well, you know, well, it taught me the following things. First of all, as a general statement, organisations, it goes back to this intention and process thing, you know, um, it's really important that organisations, the NHS, have a really clear articulation about what is it that only they can do <laughs> in order to be clear the creativity is in the boundaries between what it is that only they can do and what it is that other, other bits of the system are doing. I learned that the NHS is a complex adaptive system in which small things can make massive differences. I learned about the power of leadership and the lack of it. And I learned that bureaucracy is necessary, but it has to be helpful. And co- collecting data that doesn't become useful information is pretty pointless and I alert that the system doesn't isn't always geared to reverse the inverse care law in fact it really is yeah I learned a lot of things
0: and based on your observations of the, the leaders that you were interacting with in that role what more do you think we need to be doing to improve diversity around those tables
1: we've got a lot of work to do um yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. I mean, I would argue that race has to be front and centre of the new mission. And I say that, you know, people, whenever I say that, people say, to me, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? It becomes a tribal thing. And I'm saying it because I'm a six-foot black guy and I just want more six-foot black guys. But actually, if you deal with race, you deal with everything. You know, so what always strikes me is is when we set up the Independent Race Observatory on health and we had some other disadvantaged or discriminated against groups saying to me Victor you know what about LBTQ or what about women or what about people with disabilities and my response to that is you know last time I looked black people were all those things and historically if you look at the fact that we dealt with slavery before we dealt with the appalling treatment of women before we dealt with the appalling treatment of people with disabilities with LBTQ issues it's because you know Race is all-encompassing. <laughs> it's like you're not just black, you're black and. So if you deal with the race, you're dealing with the and as well. You know, the research says, if you look at the work done by uh, Professor David Williams at Harvard, it's very clear. The evidence is, if you deal with race, all of the protective characteristics benefits. So it's not a hierarchy of oppression. It's just evidence-based. Race, everything else matters, deals with it. And the problem with the NHS is that it has a real difficulty understanding that fact. And like the rest of society, I guess, it has a real difficulty being able to talk about race comfortably and making race discussable. And the problem is the future is decided by the things that you don't discuss, not the things that you do. So we have to talk about race, people.
0: That's so well said. You know, the future is defined by the things we don't talk about as much as the things that we do. Thank you, Victor. Before we go, I wondered if you'd be up for doing some quick fire questions, please. Go on, then. So, first question. What's something that people often get wrong about you?
1: Oh god. People often get wrong about me. I'm smarter than I actually am.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um what's the last thing you binged on, Telly?
1: Oh my god. Uh now, I did I did watch the whole of last season of the Handmaid's Tale.
0: I love that. Uh,
1: so that I could catch up. Uh, Sons of Anarchy as well I've been known to binge on.
0: If mm. you had a spare hour each day what would you spend doing?
1: That thing behind me.
0: <laughs> oh your saxophone. That's very cool.
1: I've been known to play the ukulele badly. <laughs> badly. Okay. It's worth doing some things if it's worth doing, worth doing badly so don't ask me to demonstrate. Um, I very
0: much agree with you by the way. Doing something and doing it badly is very much worth doing. Yeah. I've just started playing women's football
1: Terribly. Wow. You've got to do it.
0: I've never found something I've enjoyed more. It's amazing. Exactly.
1: Therefore, you've got to do it. If One, one is not human if you don't play.
0: Absolutely. Something that keeps you awake at night, Victor.
1: Oh, God. <laughs> something. Just the one thing. <laughs> oh, God. My kids. The um, ukulele, probably. <laughs> my kids. <laughs> yeah, my kids' ukulele. If you're a parent, it's your kids.
0: <laughs> yeah. What's one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now?
1: right now my health mm.
0: okay give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life that brings you great joy
1: oh my god well I can I can tell you <laughs> not my son so because I don't um, he doesn't live with me now but looking at the wonderfully healthy cheeks of my daughter
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> what have you learned about yourself over lockdown
1: Right. How fascinated I am by electronic music, actually. <laughs> and, um, actually, I've, I've fallen into this video thing with the greatest of ease, <laughs> which is kind of worrying. And I've learned how much I appreciate looking at nature. I hate gardening, but wow, you go out. It's, it's subtle, isn't it? You can spend your whole day studying your, your books and people talking to you. And, and then you realize the day's gone and the next day is exactly the same. You haven't been out. Mm, like mm. four days you know we're becoming more isolated and atomized. so I'm kind of worried about that you know it's taught me that we need each other more than ever
0: and I worry about some of my patients who with mental health problems and things who are really going to struggle back I'm
1: really worried they're really going to I mean I would argue that we have two pandemics one is the virus the other is mental health we're going to have to be really careful about how we manage that. I'm very worried about it. In fact, I'd say it's the top of my list of big big health and care worries is the mental health stuff.
0: So am I. So are many of my colleagues. Mm. Okay, final three bits are on the home straight. You'll be pleased to hear. What one book would you recommend to people? Oh, God. I love your reactions really? to my questions. <laughs> Everything's, oh, no, God.
1: No, well, I don't <laughs> <laughs> I have I have them through. God, I have a lot of books. Well, right now, I'm reading a book by Anand Gerardadas called Winner Takes All. It's a bit of a polemic and there's lots of critique of it, but actually I think it's great. <laughs> and if you're a bit weird and wacky and you like things that challenge you at a very deep level, The Secret History of the World is quite wacky by Jonathan Black. Yeah, those are two.
0: Thank you very much. Two new ones we've never had before. Thank you. A role model for you as a leader?
1: God. Right now, the best leader we have in the country right now is actually the England football team. And I'm, I'm not a uh, football person, really. But just watching it, it's, it's quite astonishing, actually, what they've done, what they've achieved. But it's the way they've achieved it. It's phenomenal. I think Gareth Southgate is probably the best leader in the country right now. The best public leader we've got in the country.
0: Just to Quite be clear, this is we're recording this a couple of nights after England, where yeah, they lost the, the, the final,
1: was, so lost, you, lost the final. Yeah, but but leadership isn't about leading when you're winning; it's about leading when you're losing. You know, people ask me well, what's the difference between leadership and management. The difference is that leadership involves an emotional investment in the outcome, and you see that with Gareth Southgate. You know, and that's what people really warm to but he's the dignity with which he's done it and the balance with which he's done it and the ability to communicate nuance which is in under threat in this in this country
0: fantastic and very finally victor your top three tips for new leaders
1: oh my god (laughs) (laughs) i keep saying oh my god don't i (laughs)
0: You're making uh, it sound like this is terribly painful for you. <laughs> it
1: is. <get> there. <laughs> um, so, self-doubt and ambition. I'm not sure if that's three. I always say this. And I've said it before, but it is true. Because without self-doubt, you're a sociopath. And without ambition, you're not going to get anywhere. But actually, there is three. Self-doubt, ambition, and be ruthlessly focused on solutions. Because it's not about you. It's about what you achieve with others if it's about you then you're probably not a leader
0: <laughs> I love that Victor thank you so much for your time Ooh. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking to you and I don't know if you remember no I don't I don't expect you to remember because you meet thousands of people all the time but we had a coffee in the House
1: of we did. Lords. House of Barnabas. Uh, the House of Lords, was it? House of Lords, House of we Saint made Barnabas. it. Oh, yes. Yes, I remember, because we
0: were really tiny. Yeah, yes, <laughs> I'm still really tiny, sadly. Nothing I has really changed that. in the intervening <laughs> yeah, yeah, year yeah, yeah. or so. I need to give you some feedback, if you don't mind, because I, oh, something you said to me has really helped me since then. Oh. So... We talked about the imposter syndrome, and I yeah. told you about my lack of self confidence yeah. as a small Asian yeah. woman. And you said to yeah. me, Nish, you must remember that looking different makes you memorable.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's a strength. Mm. And I never forgot that since then. And it has helped oh, well. me so much. Every oh, time oh, I've, wow. I've, I've stood up to do something or set up this podcast or whatever it might be, I've kind of thought, you know, who am I? And then I've thought, I'm a small Asian woman. That makes me memorable. Yeah,
1: makes memorable. <laughs> and
0: awesome. I, will, I will pass that on to my daughter. So well, thank you. you very much well, for that. She
1: might turn out to be six foot two.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't, not with my jeans. She definitely <laughs> will <way. laughs>
1: She no, definitely no, will well, yourself For be yourself. Because yeah. everyone else is occupied.
0: So that was episode 26 with Lord Victor Adebarali. And I really will go back and reflect on his messages on reducing health inequalities improving diversity in nhs leadership and looking after our workforce after the pandemic thank you for choosing to listen if you could share the episode with someone who might be interested subscribe and rate the podcast we'd really appreciate it and if you want to keep in touch with next gen or join one of our programs sign up to our monthly bulletin the links in the show notes and on our website and we'll see you soon for episode 27